In my last assignment at Our Lady of Angels Parish, I preached a Sunday homily, and this fellow came up to me after Mass, and he said, Father, your homily really spoke to me. I think you're a priest who can help me. Uh, I'd like to make an appointment with you. And of course, I always welcome that. You know, I kind of wonder what it's going to be all about, but I welcome it. Uh, God works in these ways, these uh, wonderful ways. You know, and you don't, never know what you're going to say that's going to help somebody on their path to heaven. So I made an appointment with a fellow, and he came in and um, sat down in my office a couple of days later. And do you know what he wanted? Dating advice. And so he told me this whole travail, you know, of his romantic life. And um, I said, when, what, when did you graduate from high school? And he said, 47 years ago. And I said, okay, well, okay, we can talk. I gave him the best advice that I could, really. And without getting into the whole, of this whole situation, this whole, the circumstances of what he, he was saying, um, there was this lady who they'd been kind of together, kind of just dating, I guess. And then she said, I don't really like you in that way anymore, or I don't really like you like that, you know. Um, and, uh, but I still want to be friends. Okay, now if I had a nickel for every time a woman said, I still want to be friends, then I would, you know, I don't know, I'd be a millionaire, I guess. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I gave him the best advice that I could, you know, which was, move on, you know, move on. Because she still wanted to uh, see him and send him text message and, and see, I'm thinking of you and I'd like to love to have lunch with you sometime. I'm like, well, guess what? You know, she doesn't get to have that, right? She can't have all the comforts of kind of being with you without having this relationship, knowing that this is what you want, right? So give her some space, give her some time, give yourself some room here, buddy, you know? And so um, he received that about... Uh, as I would expect a 15-year-old boy to receive that, you know, because that's not what he wanted to hear. He said, well, she's going on a trip and she's going to be gone for a long weekend. Maybe I'll give her a call after that. We can work all this out. I'm like, oh my gosh, did you listen to anything that I said at all? You know, and he didn't. Um, he didn't. Uh, and yet there is that moment of grace, right? Now, the fact is that whether uh, we're 15 or whether in this fellow's uh, case, he was, I think, like 64. You know, we want to be loved. We want to be loved. There's no doubt about that. We were made for love, made for love. In fact, the two greatest desires of our heart are that we, uh, we long to be loved by someone, and we want to give ourselves to someone in love. This is the way that God has made us. And, of course, the fullness of love is shown in Jesus, that fullness of love. Oh, but we, you know, have so many problems in our lives, and it's not just young people, but other people, uh, older people, uh, who don't understand this about, our, about themselves, that we're made for love, that we want to give ourselves to someone in love, we want to be loved by someone. The greatest desire is such a powerful uh, motivator in our life, and we don't know what to do with it sometimes. But Jesus, you know, is the one who can love us with that perfect love. He is the one who can receive all the love that we have to give. Oh, and so this, that's the place where we begin, you know, especially if we have not yet entered into, you know, our vocation uh, yet. Now, St. John of Avila, 
he was giving advice to a priest by letter. You know, priests used to write each other letters. Now we send each other text messages. Uh, there will not be any volume in the future of like text messages, wise text messages sent by priests, you know, to, to other priests, right? But, but back in the day, pre- priests wrote letters. And so this, this priest, this young priest was inquiring of St. John of Avila, Avila how, how do you prepare for Mass? And how can I best prepare for Mass? And very simply, St. John of Avila said to him, meditate on who it is who comes to us in Holy Communion, who it is, and why, why he comes to us. And it is Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, who comes to us, the God that the whole universe cannot contain. He deigns to give himself to us in this small and silent host, in uh, this host that is made for us. Uh, made from Christ's longing to be one with us and build us up as one in him, to fulfill the desire of our heart and give us, you know, everything that he has to give us of himself and all of the grace uh, that he can. This perfect and indescribable and boundless love of God. That is why. Why? Because he is longing uh, to be united with us. And it's the whole Christ who we receive in his fullness in, in Holy Communion. And the whole Christ who we observe here in this moment when we are together, it follows that, of course, our notion of Jesus in the Eucharist is the same analogously as our notion of ourself. It is not complete. It is not full. Okay? Um, And I don't mean to kind of belabor that point, but we just, again, have to just accept this about ourselves and our limitations and and, and humbly understand that there really is so much more. Um, Because Christ, the whole Christ is here. He gives himself to us knowing that he is preparing us for heaven. When we will see him face to face and we will be like him and know him even as we are known by him. So the mystery of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is so profound. So beautiful, so immense, that I, I want to give you uh, perhaps another perspective, a different perspective uh, on it. Um, it's utterly inexhaustible, of course. Um, but earlier this year, I, I read um, a book called Insinu Jesu, which is Latin for at the breast of Christ, like St. John at the Last Supper, at the very breast of Christ, right by his heart. And this is um, a prayer journal that's written by a Benedictine monk and just published in the last, I think, two years. Okay, so all of these, all of these, uh, the Lord was speaking to him in his prayer over the course of, I think, 2006, 2007. It goes up all the way through 2014. It's not everything, but it's very, very substantial. And he thought that this message and what the Lord was saying to him was very important for other priests to hear, other, for other priests to know. Um, this has made a, a big difference in my priesthood. Uh, and I think it would be very edifying reading uh, for, for anybody, truly. Uh, but this, is, this book is what the Lord told him at, at prayer. And in part, um, Jesus said to him, There is not a single moment of my sufferings that is not present in this my sacrament of love. Here you will find me in every detail of my passion, for nothing of my passion has passed away. All remains actual and efficacious in the mysteries of my body and blood given up for you. If you would be with me in my sufferings, come to me in the sacrament of my love. If you would keep watch with me in Gethsemane, come to my altar and abide there with me. 
If you would accompany me in my imprisonment, my, in my trial, in my condemnation, in my being mocked, scourged, and crowned with thorns, seek me out in this sacrament where I wait for a little compassion from those who profess to be my friends. I am still carrying my cross, and the weight of your sins falls heavy on my shoulder and crushes me even to the ground. None of this is over and forgotten. It remains present in the sacrament of my passion, in the mystery of my sacrifice made present on the altar and remaining wherever I am, the pure victim, the holy victim, the spotless victim, whom you contemplate in the host. Here I am, present, crucified, with my wounds pouring out blood and my prayer to the Father piercing to the heavens. Here I am present in the very moment of my death wherein all is consummated. Here I am present with my open side, from which flow out blood and water to purify souls, to heal them and restore them to life. Would that my friends knew this, that all of my passion is contained in this most holy sacrament, not as something lost to a past that can never be recovered, but as my perfect and all-sufficient oblation to the Father, renewed here and now in every detail, although, although sacramentally and without a shedding of blood. This all my saints understood, the presence of my passion in the sacrament, and this sacrament as the memorial of my passion. This the Holy Spirit teaches even to the little and to the poor who open their hearts to my mysteries made present on the altar. This is the great reality that today so many have forgotten. For this reason do I ask you to come to me here in the sacrament where I wait for you, and to offer me the consolation in my sufferings that only you can give me, and for which I have waited so long. Now, we can uh, take it or leave it, okay? I mean, there's no, there's an imprimatur on this in, in this book, in that you know, there's nothing that's contrary to the faith. You know, this is what this monk received in prayer. And I think it's utterly beautiful and amazing. Truly, all of Christ is present in the Eucharist. As we adore him, you know, as we receive him, the totality of his, of his eternal life and his earthly life, every moment of his passion, because he made this offering, as St. Paul says in the book of Hebrews, once for all, once for all. And then when we were, as he says in, St. Paul says in Romans, when we were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. So by our baptism into his death, we were buried with him so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the Father's glorious power, so we should too begin living a new life. If we have been joined to him by, a by dying a death like his, so we shall be by a re resurrection like his. So we are joined in all this, the, the, the totality of, of uh, Christ's eternal life, his earthly life, all of it, every moment. If we can even say that. You know, that every moment of, of eternity, we are joined to Christ in Holy Communion. All of this, um, all of Christ and the fruits of the passion that he wills to give us are present in the Eucharist. And as I tell people again and again and again, this is the way that the Lord has chosen to give himself to us. And if there's any gift that he could give us that was greater, he would have given it. He would have given it. But he gives himself. And it's because he desires this deep communion um, he desires our communion in him as the life of Trinity is one. Um, so he wishes to draw us into that life of God. 
Now, the parable of the prodigal son, it teaches us about God's, in the image of the father, God's boundless uh, mercy, his mercy that doesn't even seem to make sense, and his longing for us, his longing to be reconciled to us, longing to, uh, that we may abide with him. And I don't want to read the whole parable. It's rather lengthy. It's a parable that we know very well. Well, we know that the younger uh, brother, that he goes to his father and wishes, wishes his half of the inheritance, and who wishes to take it and go. And in saying that, he's saying I to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And the father, you know, it doesn't make sense, but the father gives him his portion of the inheritance, and he goes off, and he, you know, is, lives this debauched life in this foreign country uh, with um, all manner, you know, of terrible uh, sins, these sins that would have been so offensive to the ears of, of, of Jesus' hearers you know, of this parable uh, until there's nothing left. And then he's reduced uh, to living with a swine, you know, eating, you know, what they eat, tending uh, to them. And he, but then he longs to come home. He longs to come home. And he rehearses that whole, uh, uh, that whole confession, I guess you would say rehearses what he's going to say to his father. And his father, you know, is, is there waiting for him. You know, that the gospel says that he is there, sees his son from, the, from a distance. Well, this is not a case, the case of the father being in the right place at the right time. Okay, I mean, the father has gone to the edge of his property and all around to different places in his property all of these days, waiting to see some glimpse of his son from the way that, the way that he left. Maybe he'll come back that way. Maybe he'll come back from another, another path. But he sees him coming in, from this great distance away because he's there waiting for him. And in this act of self-abasement, he runs to him. You know, he runs to him to embrace him because his son has finally returned and then he gets the confession from his son who is so sorry for all of his sins and the father restores him to all the gifts of the household, all the gifts of this royal household, the ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet, the royal robe, all of it. And then the older brother hears of this, you know, party going on, you know, because they're celebrating, you know, this son's return now the son, the older brother is off, you know, doing work, you know, for the father and then returns and here's his, bro- his son, is, his brother is, is home and he is jealous, he is angry, he is bitter, he is proud, he is ungrateful um, and he is holding this against the father. How is it that you could do this and you never did this for me, that you never, I never, you never even gave me? You know, a goat from my, my friends. I can't remember if it's a goat. This is where I'm not a very good priest. I don't remember these little picking you in details. The thing is, in a, is, I don't know. They kill the fatted calf. I don't know. I get, kind of get excited about that. Is it a goat for his friends? I can't remember. Anyway, you know the story, right? Um, so the father says, all that I have and all that I am is yours. You've always been with me. You are always with me. And, and the parable is kind of left there. We don't know what happens next. But the problem, you know, that remains is that the younger brother and the older brother, the prodigal son who is young, who has wasted his, parent, his father's wealth, the prodigal son who is the older brother who has wasted all of this time, all of this love, all of this grace by not appreciating it, not living it, they're both prodigal sons and they don't know how to live in the father's house. They don't know how to live in the father's house. This is the problem that the parable presents to us and then leaves it for us to ponder. You know, and, and in doing so, what is it we, we then learn what it means, 
or, or think what it means for us to live in the Father's house, for us to be in that communion, you know, with him. We have to let him show us, let him teach us. And Flannery O'Connor, uh, a favorite author of mine, uh, she uh, has this expression uh, in one of, uh, of something that she wrote in the foreword of a book um, that the, the second graders came to visit her farm where she raised peacocks in addition to writing and going to daily mass, I would add. And this is the, they come to visit the peacocks. And she says they're at an at a age where they learn by living. They learn by living, right? And so this is how we learn the kingdom of God, how we learn the, the love, how we learn uh, to live in the Father's house. We really learn by living. We learn by choosing. It's not something that is fully received, but something that is certainly reciprocated in a way that we choose uh, to live the love of the Father. But we can learn from some of, the, some of the sins of the older brother. We can learn, I think, what not to do and, and, and how, to, how to live, truly, how to respond. He is close-hearted and unmerciful. He, doesn't, he won't forgive his younger brother. He, he seems to not forgive his father, to be holding so much against his father. So we, what we can learn from this is that we need to be forgiving. We need to glorify the Lord's mercy. Oh, I don't think we understand forgiveness very well. And I find myself saying this over and over and over again. Uh, forgiveness is not forgive and forget. Forgiveness is not like, okay, we're never going to talk about that again. Okay? I mean, we're not made to forget. We can't forget. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what we would be like if we forgot about those things. We want to forget, but we were not made to forget. Forgiveness is not forgive and forget, okay? Forgiveness um, is not saying that it's okay. You know, forgiveness is not also saying that we're going to be fully reconciled now and I'm going to trust you, you're going to be my best friend or whatever. That's not forgiveness either. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is a choice. And what it's saying is because of the mercy of God, I am not holding this against you anymore. And I'm commending you, you know, to his mercy. That's what forgiveness is. It's a choice. It doesn't depend on our feelings. And, you know, when, we, when we're angry or hurt, you know, even things that happened decades ago, we might think of them and all the emotions rush back. And we think, I can't forgive because I still have those feelings. Well, the feelings don't keep us from forgiving. In fact, making that choice to forgive is going to take the edge off our feelings. It's going, to, it's going to open our heart to God in a way that he can begin to heal us. So we have to make that choice to forgive. It really is an act of the will. Okay? But it's also an act of faith, because what we think is impossible uh, for us is possible with and through God. So it might seem like it's going to take a miracle for us to make that heroic act of forgiveness, but with God this is possible. And so this is the way to forgive. We do it in the name of Jesus as an act of faith. We do it in a personal way, okay? And we, then we be specific about it too. Now, we've got to do it as a prayer, okay, as a... As a, as a choice. You know, it's not like we say these words to the person who might have hurt us, but we do this as a beginning, you know, to forgive and then to go on in the way that God wants us to live. Do you understand? So I think the best way to do this is, is to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to make a list of the people who we need to forgive, those things that keep coming up in our mind, you know, those things that still sting. What do we think about them? The things we're holding against other people. It could be somebody very close to us. It could be somebody sitting in the pew next to us. It could be somebody who, you know, hurt our feelings in second grade, you know. It could be, you know, father, mother, you know. Um, but we've got to make that list with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now it might be a very, very long list. The first time I did this, it was very long, very, very long list. Um, then we, maybe we start with the top three, top five, okay. And my advice would be to come to the church 
and to do it in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament and sit someplace where nobody else can hear you, but you've got to speak these words, even if it's a whisper, so that it comes out, because it's all this stuff that we hold on to as part of us. It's got to come out, has to come out. And so we do it in this way. I'll just, well, I'll tell you a story. Um, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, my first assignment was wonderful. I mean, it really was. I've got nothing bad to say about it. But you know priests don't get, always get along with each other, right? Did you know that? Uh, I bet you didn't know that. I bet you thought we were all just, you know, wonderful and holy and loving all the time. Uh, well, it happened that uh, my former pastor uh, rearranged all the furniture and everything to decorate for Christmas, all the furniture in the sanctuary. And me being this, uh, you know, wanting things my own way, I didn't like it. I didn't like the, ch- the priest's chair where it was. It was right in front of the tabernacle. So what do I do for the first Mass of Christmas Eve? I move the chair back where I want it to be. Okay, so that here's the church packed. I mean packed. First Mass of Christmas Eve. I mean, people have been sitting there for an hour, standing room only. You know, the, the, uh, there are people standing in the aisles, you know, because there's just so many people in the church. And he comes into the back door and uh, I'm right there. We've got the altar servers, got the little ba- bambino, baby Jesus in my arms, uh, ready to process in. And he said, who moved the chair? And I said, well, I did. And he went off. You know, I mean, he really went off. Like, you know, I put it there. I want it there. It's, I'm the pastor. It's Christmas. Who do you think you are? Why, does it always, why do you always have to get your own way? You know, all of this stuff. And I'm always very calm in those moments. Okay, I'm always very calm. And I said... Father, I meant no disrespect. Well, see, when we're really mad at each other, we call each other Father. <laughs> when, we're really, when we're really having a tough time, Father. <laughs> right? um, Father, I meant no disrespect. I promise I will move everything back. I, I promise you I will do that. Ring the bell, start Mass. Okay, so there I was walking down the aisle. Now, needless to say, I was off my game. Okay, off my game. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, it was pretty bad, pretty rough. Um... And, you know, now this pastor of mine, wonderful man, uh, we're very close now. Uh, we were pretty close in, when I was there. But a prayerful man, I mean, three hours, four hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament every day. I mean, amazing. I can't say anything bad about him. I, I really can't. Because he's just very, very, very holy and loving man. Uh, but, you know, this happened. And I knew what I needed to do. I knew I needed to forgive him. Okay, because I went, you know, after Mass in the morning, I went to see my family. They know I was upset. I told them all about it. I was really, really, really upset. But I knew what I needed to do. So when I got back to the church on Christmas, the night of Christmas Day, it's dead, dark, quiet. Nobody else is around. And I sat in the very back pew of the church. And I said, as a prayer, in the name of Jesus, name of pastor, (laughs) I forgive you. I forgive you for yelling at me, for humiliating me. I forgive you for uh, thinking the worst of me. I forgive you for spoiling Christmas. And all of that stuff, you know, just, it wasn't a burden to me anymore. It wasn't. You know, that it it all just came off of me. And I was able able to forgive, I did forgive him, you know. Because honestly, holding onto these grudges, bitterness, anger, resentment, all of it, it's like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to get sick. You know, all it does is hurt us. All it does is close our hearts to God and close our hearts to other people. You know, and because if we hold on to a grudge, it's like this lens through which we see that one person, this distorted lens. And that lens, as we age, 
gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the lens through which we see everybody. And finally, the lens through which we see God. And that is the tragedy, you know, of uh, holding on to these things. When we can be free, when we can forgive, when we can really enjoy that communion and live in the Father's house. Because the Father's house is a house of mercy. So this is the way to forgive. Again, make a list with the Holy Spirit. Make a list just of the names, okay? Then begin, okay, begin in that way, okay? Um, In the name of Jesus, Dad, I forgive you. I forgive you for not being there when I needed you. I forgive you for not teaching me how to be a a man. I forgive you for not imparting, you know, the skills that you should have taught me. I forgive you for missing, you know, uh, that that important event in my life, whatever it might be, okay? Whatever it is that we might need to forgive others for. Um, But remember, well, don't, I shouldn't say remember. I should say this very emphatically. There is definitely one person who needs to be on that list. And it's you. It's you. Because we have this enormous capacity to hold things against ourselves, do we not? Even though God forgives us, right? So we've got to forgive ourselves. We have to. And that is the way to forgive. That frees us. Now, it doesn't mean that, again, that we have to trust somebody implicitly. Okay, even in a close relationship like marriage, that trust has to be healed, restored. Okay? So it's not like, you know, forgiving them means that you've got to trust them and they've got to be your best friend again. Okay? That's something that is kind of earned. Uh, but at least that healing can take place. And if there's a conversation or some interaction or something, something comes up, I have forgiven you. You know, I have forgiven you. You know, um, th- that we can speak that and it's the truth. And then if we ever think about it again, maybe the feelings come back. Okay, after all, we're only human, right? But it doesn't mean we haven't forgiven. So just like I said yesterday, if we ever remember our past sins, anything, that we praise the Lord for his mercy and praise him for his love, same thing if we forgive somebody and, it com- and, the, and the memories come back, we, forget, we, we praise the Lord for his mercy. We praise him for his love. You know, because we have forgiven. We have glorified the Lord's mercy. So be forgiving. Be forgiving. And we also need to pray to, be, to live in the Father's house. Um, unquestionably, we need to pray. And I think in recent uh, decades, um, before this you know, was, was happening, before I was born, certainly, um, but that this activism has taken the place of an interior life, a spiritual life, and even in the heart of the church, I'm very sorry to say. And so I'll quote Pope Benedict that he wrote in Deus Caritas Est, that God is love. He wrote, prayer as a means of drawing ever new strength from Christ is concretely and urgently needed. People who pray are not wasting their time, even though the situation appears desperate and seems to call for action alone. Piety does not undermine the struggle against the poverty of our neighbors, however extreme. It is time to reaffirm the importance of prayer in the face of activism and the growing secularism of many Christians engaged in charitable work. Clearly, the Christian who prays does not claim to be able to change God's plans or correct what he has foreseen. Rather, he seeks an encounter with the Father of Jesus Christ, asking God to be present with the consolation of the Spirit to him and his work, crying out to the Father as it was for Jesus on the cross, the deepest and most radical way of affirming our faith in any sovereign power. Though prayer is so important, so very, very important. Mother Teresa, uh, 
No, they didn't do any of the other work, uh, the, that charitable work on a Thursday. That was the day for prayer, for adoration and all of that, right? So they just did what they had to do, you know, to kind of take care of the, the community. Um, but she herself spent at least an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament each day. And she thought, if I can't take strength from God, I will have nothing to give to all of these people. And so we need to also give time to, prayer, time to God in prayer, opening our hearts to God without fail, to resist any temptation and every temptation not to pray, that voice that tells us that we're too tired or that we don't really need to pray or that we'll do it tomorrow or it's not doing anything for us. We need to resist that, cast it aside, and pray. And I think a great way for families to pray and couples to pray is this uh, very these three questions, okay, we put them before, we think, we, we think of these questions, but then we pray with our own words, answering the questions, okay? What do we have to thank God for? What do we have to thank God for? Who should we pray for? You know, all those other people in our life. What do we need from God? No, very simply, put those three questions before the Lord together as a family. What do we have to thank God for? Who should we pray for? What do we need from God? And pray in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament as often as, as you can, even if just for a short visit. Um, I think we put so much pressure on ourselves. I'm like, I've got to do a holy hour. I've got to spend so much time. I've got to do all of this or it's just a failure. Well, the littlest thing that we can offer is so pleasing to God. And I, and I, I, I remember this little poem, this little rhyme, I guess you would say, that a priest taught me he, he, in, while I was in seminary. He wasn't a seminary professor, but I just happened to meet him in seminary. He said, every time I pass the church, I stop to make a visit, so when I go and meet the Lord, he doesn't ask, who is it? Okay, so we're, so, we're not, so, so we're not strangers to him, okay? Every time I pass the church, I stop to make a visit, so when I go and meet the Lord, he doesn't ask, who is it? Now, in our prayer life, I think it's easy with all the ups and downs to kind of get discouraged. Okay, I'll give you this uh, image, I guess, that all of you will understand. Young people don't really understand this. And it sounds a little weird when I start off, but you're going to get the picture, okay, I promise. Um, you know when a guy meets a girl and there's a spark of interest there and attraction, and the girl, if she is wise and self-respecting and knows herself and understands how much of a treasure she is and, and knows, understands human nature, if she does all that, then if she is interested in the guy, what she does to pique his interest, completely ignores him, Right? And so then the fellow is like, okay, this is a challenge. You know, this is a challenge. And so if he's interested, you know, really interested, then what, what he'll do is he'll pursue, okay? And then should perhaps acquiesce, have a little conversation, maybe meet for lunch, whatever. Um, but then what begins is what we call the chase, the chase. Okay, now teenagers do not understand this. They don't. It's not part of their life, okay? It's really a shame um, because... They're, they're stuck in this, like, this stupid thing of like, well, you know, she likes me, so I'm going to like her back kind of thing. Um, and text, you know, exchanging text messages and all of that, that instead of actually having a conversation. So they don't understand this. But, you know, this, this back and forth of romantic love, the guy pursuing, you know, the girl kind of uh, returning, maybe drawing back at some, at some time. Maybe the guy draws back a little bit. You know, they can't, because you can't keep up, you know, that... Uh, intensity, I guess you would say, 
um, of it that there's always this back and forth with respect to romantic love and that the guy is always trying to do things that's just a surprise and delight, you know, his beloved, you know, whether it's uh, maybe a spontaneous gift, like flowers or something like that, or a note, I'm thinking of you, you know, a phone call, something like that. But it's the very essence of romantic love and there's this closeness that is wonderful, but then there's also sometimes this distance too. And in that distance, there's longing. Okay, now this doesn't stop when a couple gets engaged, and it doesn't stop when a couple gets married. And you have been married for a while. If you're not still doing things um, to surprise and delight each other in this way, you know, um, in expressing your care, expressing your desire uh, in this way, um, then you should, you really should, uh, because it's the essence of romantic love, really. Um, now, I can't think of anything better to compare our life in God to because there are times when we feel this amazing closeness to the Lord. This wonderful consolation is the beauty you know, of being so near him. And other times where he feels like he's 10,000 miles away. Well, how can we explain that? You know, well, if we're living a good life and we're not you know, in a, you know, a, always in a state of mortal sin or ignoring God or you know, just too proud to open our hearts to him, if there's not some moral problem there, then this is just something else altogether. The fact is God wants us to long for him, wants us to pursue him. You know, it's the chase, okay? It's the essence of romantic love that God has imprinted upon that, on us in our, in our spiritual life too. So we should never be discouraged and never think God's not answering my prayers or God's not there. You know, but rather just to keep pursuing. Those consolations will return, that closeness will return. But remember that heaven is that heaven is when we're going to have that eternal consolation, that gladness without end. We're not meant to experience it here. So rather than get discouraged and fall away, we should keep pursuing, you know, and uh, and see this as, as an opportunity, um, a great opportunity uh, to really love the Lord, because he wants us to learn by living, right? And to love him more by choosing to love him, okay? And so this is, this is why he is, again, this is the way that God has made us. Okay? St. Ignatius of uh, Loyola, this saying is attributed to him. He said, pray if, if, as if everything depends on God, work is as, as if everything depends uh, on you. And so then we have to see that our diligence, not only just in our prayer, but in, our, in the work that we have for the kingdom too. So it seems like the older brother was doing his work. He just wasn't doing it with the right attitude. You know, um, I think because he was so ungrateful. So this is why we need to be grateful to the Lord truly. Uh, now, but before I talk about gratitude, I want to talk about obedience. Okay? And this is the part where everybody goes like, oh, Father, come on. You know, <laughs> why do we have to talk about this? You know, all this other stuff is so inspiring, and now you're talking about obedience. Well, obedience is the highest form of love. Okay, obedience is the highest form of love. Um, Jesus shows us that going to the cross for us, out of, God's, out of obedience to God the Father's plan for our salvation. That's how he shows us that obedience is love. And Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I can't tell you how many times as a priest I've heard somebody say in a, a conversation or in confession. I'm struggling with this, and 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 I'm struggling with this. Okay, I'm struggling and, and struggling and struggling and struggling. Okay, and my question is always, 
you know, when somebody gets to the end of whatever it, that list is. Um, my question is always, what are you striving for? What are you striving for? And we've got to change our thinking. Okay, not that we're just falling, 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 but that we're striving to obey God, to grow in virtue. As we want to grow in love, we choose love. If we want to uh, grow in any other virtue, we choose it. We act as though we already had it. This is the way that we grow. Okay, so that if, then if we think, I'm going to obey God, and I want to obey God, I want to express my love to God by obeying God, then, gosh, the devil can't do too much with that. Okay, he can't do too much with it. It confounds him greatly when we just want to obey God. Okay, now, the, they say the church is a hospital for sinners. Pope Francis wasn't the first one to say that. Uh, and it is, I'm not going to argue, but it's also the school of saints. Okay, so I don't know. I think people uh, treat the church like the um, urgent care, you know, spiritual urgent care. Um, and I, a very wise priest told me, um, there are no spiritual emergencies. <laughs> there are just sacramental emergencies. So somebody's is having some spiritual crisis and they say, uh, this is a spiritual emergency. You're like, okay, simmer down. You know, let's talk about this. But, you know, it, this is not the emergency that you may think it is. It's that they, they treat the church and priests like it's this urgent care, right? Um, and yes, some people have wounds that need to be bound up. And I will never say no to anybody who needs to go to confession. You know, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical or mean here or anything like that. But there's more than the church being the hospital for sinners. It's also the school for saints. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, because the church understands human nature so much. Because the church uh, and this path that God has given us to heaven is our, full, is our complete fulfillment in Christ. That a life of virtue and grace... Um, is our perfection as human beings. You know, this is the thing that we really need to embrace, you know, that, that, that we need to see. And I think that will help us to choose, you know, obedience to God's, uh, to God's ways, to see this as a, our perfection, okay? Um, so, he, you know, the fact is, is that um, the Lord wants us to be happy eternally, eternally. And happiness comes from being faithful to God in our life and in our relationships, uh, now, I think it's very, very important uh, also that we be grateful, grateful. As the older brother was ungrateful, then we need to be grateful for everything. And uh, I'll close uh, with this one last story, okay? I heard this in seminary. It had a great effect on me. I still think about it. I think about it just about every day. Uh, it was about the priest with two right hands. So this newly ordained fellow has all the exuberance of uh, all the exuberance of uh, um, someone, a man who's just been ordained, swimming in an ocean of joy, so excited, and you know he says, "I'm going to count up all the great things, all the wonderful things, all the happiness, all the joys, everything that I share with people, and all the consolations that God gives me. I'm going to put them all in my right hand, and then all the trials and the tears and the sufferings and the humiliations and all of that, whatever I'm enduring, whatever my people are enduring." I'm going to put all those in my left hand and I'm going to count, you know, each day, all those things. And day after day after day, he, he saw there was so much more in his left hand than there was in his right. And after a while, he said, I'll be honest with you, what every priest says at some point in their priesthood, every priest 
says to the Lord. Lord, I didn't think it was going to be this way. I didn't think the priesthood was going to be this way. I didn't think that there was going to be uh, so much brokenness that you wanted me to see and try to heal. I didn't think there was going to be so many uh, humiliations, so much rejection, so much of uh, this feeling that, you know, I can't do what you need me to do and that it's futile. I didn't know it was going to be this way. I didn't know it was going to be so hard. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be this way in the priesthood. Well, that priest, you know, he said that. He said that to the Lord and he, he was resolved, you know, that he would, that every day when he counted up all of those things in his right and in his left, he would take everything from his left hand and put it into his right hand. And that was the way that he could see, as I have mentioned, all things work for the good of those who love God. If they happened to Jesus, they're going to happen to us. Not just us priests, but all of us. All things work for the good of those who love God. All things can be redeemed in Him. He is that powerful. He is that awesome, that loving. And so we can trust in Him with our whole heart. If we can thank Him, not just for all the joys and the happy feelings, but thank Him you know, for the trials and the difficulties and all of that that draws closer to Him, that help us to grow in virtue, that help us to grow in love, that help us to obey... You know, this is how he redeems us and redeems all of creation. If we can praise him and thank him for all of those things too, then again, we are going to be his sons and daughters in the way that he wills us to be. But we can trust in him to praise him even for those very difficult things, those heartbreaking things, those things that we wish weren't part of anybody's life, much less uh, our own. God really is that great. He really is uh, that powerful.